was reading this week about the other, other drug problem. Maybe some of you are familiar with this. Uh, I'm not talking about the drug problem of the illegal drug problem. So not, not talking about fentanyl or cocaine or any of those other things. Um, also not talking about the legal, now legal drug problem of marijuana and other things that uh, come along with that. that what they're, people are calling the other drug problem is the problem of people not taking their prescription medication. It's actually people who study these things now have come to the conclusion it is a huge um, problem for, uh, for us as a society. They, they say that only half of people who suffer from chronic illness actually continue to take their med- medication. Uh, as an example, uh, people who suffer from high blood pressure uh, they say only 51% of them will uh, continue to take that high blood pressure medication, and, uh, and the consequences can be big. It, it's what led to uh, Bill Clinton's rather high-profile uh, heart surgery in 2004, where he was taking some uh, medication for high cholesterol, uh, started to feel better, didn't think he needed it anymore, his levels went down a little bit, and he found himself uh, facing a quadruple bypass surgery as a result of that. Uh, they even say that only 78% of doctors take their own prescriptions. It's crazy, but there, there is that sense that I know better, I can handle this, I'm feeling good, maybe it's not doing anything. It's, you know, and, and, and people will... Uh, People will make these decisions. And for me, it's not, uh, not so much about what, where they ended up. It's how people, uh, how we as a society make these decisions. How do we get there? Why do we leave the pills on the nightstand? What's going through our minds as we, as we make those decisions or make those what I'll, I, I think are maybe better called non-decisions? I call them non-decisions because I don't think there's a lot of people who are sitting across the table from the doctor and debating and arguing and pulling out medical journals and saying, no, I think it's not that way. I think that uh, I've got a better plan. I don't think that we come at those decisions so consciously. I think most people take the prescriptions, get home, start taking them, find them a little bit inconvenient, a little bit uncomfortable, don't, not crazy about the side effects, starting to feel pretty good, maybe not thinking that it's such a big deal after all, and not so much after, again, pulling out the medical journals and the scientific studies, just slip into a non-decision to not take them anymore. I think we've come to a place in our culture today where that's not just taking place in, in terms of prescription medication. And by the way, uh, in case you're wondering, today's passage has absolutely nothing to do with prescription medication. It does, however, have everything to do with some of the non-decisions that we make in our relationship with God, in our judgments about who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our lives. And those non-decisions that we can slip into have huge and profound consequences for our lives. And yet often, 
like the, the, the pills that we leave on the nightstand, often we haven't consciously, intentionally, or thoroughly thought through our non-decisions. We just kind of slip into them. Uh, today we're starting a series in uh, John's Gospel. We're going to work from uh, pick up in John chapter 7 where we left off about a year ago and uh, uh, work through, uh, uh, through a number of uh, chapters. And it's a series we call the, the Savior Who Frees You. But today's passage is looking at how we relate to the Savior. Because if there is a Savior who wants to free us, it involves a response and, and we need to think through how we relate to the Savior who wants to do something uh, positive in our lives. How, how will we respond to, them, to him? What decisions will we make about him? How will we evaluate his role in our lives and how we relate to him? What I'd encourage you to do as we're working through the passage, as we're thinking about God's word this morning, is to think about some of the non-decisions that you may have made. Non-decisions about who Jesus is. Uh, Non-decisions about what place you are going to give him in your life. Uh, Some of the non-decisions that you may have made about things that you're sensing that he's trying to deal with, uh, things that he has been nudging in your life and, and It's not that you've completely rejected him or turned your back on what he's seeking to do, but it just feels a little uncomfortable, a little inconvenient, and it would be a lot easier to slip into a non-decision and uh, to just not respond to some of the uh, things that you know Jesus may want to do in your life. Uh, We're looking at uh, John chapter 7. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me uh, there. And I'm going to be reading from verse 19. It's on page 839 of your pew Bible, if you want to use that in front of you. And we're, we're, our goal this morning is not just to look at those non-decisions that we've slipped into, but to do something that's more and more difficult for us as a society. Make a decision. Get intentional about it to understand Uh, what those things are that God is calling us to and actually respond. Actually make a call, make a judgment, make a decision, make up our mind. Uh, So if you'd follow along, John chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of God. Now, the first appeal from this passage is to make up our minds because self-justification is self-delusion. That what we can find ourselves when we make non-decisions is we will slip into a place where we find ourselves rationalizing our 
behavior or our positions or our, our, where, where we're at instead of actually making a clear judgment, making a clear a decision about what's, what's put before us. The passage that I just read for you begins in conflict. We are in a place where Jesus is just entered into the, uh, the temple area, the, the temple courtyard. It's a, at a time known as the Feast of Booths. You may know it as the uh, Jewish celebration of Sukkot. Uh, that's a time of year when you drive around and see um, in your neighborhoods, perhaps, uh, Jewish homes will often put up these temporary dwellings. They look kind of like tents or, or uh, uh, some, some kind of uh, temporary structure. And what they're doing is celebrating uh, the... The, the deliverance from Exodus and the time that they spent in the wilderness uh, enjoying the provision of God and the goodness of God as he protected and provided for them during those uh, wilderness travels. And so we're, we're at this time uh, and it's, it's that celebration. It was one of the times when every male in, every male, uh, in Israel was expected to show up in, in Jerusalem for this festival, and often the entire family would come. So you're, you're picturing Jerusalem just teeming with people, all kinds of crowds. And into that crowd, Jesus has, has appeared. He's begun to teach, and people are, are interacting with him and talking with him. The crowds have gathered around him, and it's a bit of a stir. So you have that kind of... Uh, that, that kind of uh, situation going on. And in verse 19, he's speaking with the religious leaders and he pauses and asks why they're trying to kill him. What's exactly going on? It's not like they've pulled knives on him and, uh, or they've, they've, uh, they've got the, the, the guns out or anything like that. There's, it's not that kind of attempt. But he knows that at this very moment, they are plotting his death, plotting to take him out. It would be another six months, and Jesus will be crucified by these same leaders that he's addressing right now. And so what he's doing is, before they get to that moment, while they're, the wheels are turning and they're beginning to set in motion plans to bring Jesus down to crucify him, that he tries to engage them, tries to have them think through what it is that they were they're doing and hopefully save them from a non-decision that ends up in his death and his rejection. As he does so, he points them to the law. These were Jewish authorities that prided themselves in their, their possession of the law. They prided themselves in their knowledge of the law. They, they prided themselves in memorizing the law and flaunting their knowledge of it. And Jesus says, yeah, you do all of those things, but you're not keeping the law. In fact, he points him to this plot that they have right now to, in fact, kill him. Do not murder is one of the ABCs of the law. This is not a little minutia here. In, in plotting his death, they are uh, committing and, and planning to commit uh, one of the greatest sins that they could. But... This isn't just killing a man. To kill God's Messiah, to, to kill the Savior, would be to create an even, uh, commit an even greater crime. 
But somehow they're using the Bible to justify their sin. Sometimes, somehow they're using the Bible to explain away what they're doing. They hide behind uh, various uh, verses and scriptures to somehow justify what they're doing. And you and I can do the same thing today. We can do the same thing today when we, we look for favorite passages that will somehow support and defend what we're doing and ignore other more uncomfortable passages that, that can convict and point to things in our life that we know God would otherwise desire to change. We can rationalize. We can take the scriptures and misuse them to protect ourselves. Jesus puts his finger on the authority's main accusation against him. It's his healing on the Sabbath. You see this coming up again and again in, this, in, the, in the Gospels. In verse 21, he says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. The, the work that he's referring to there is a miracle that he had performed in John chapter 5. He healed uh, a man who had been paralyzed for some 38 years. And when it says that they marveled at it, they weren't marveling, what an incredible thing Jesus had done. They marveled at the fact that he had done this thing on a day when they thought he should just be resting. And so, so they were criticizing him and attacking him for having done work on the Sabbath. Well, we need to stop there and, and just point out, it wasn't like Jesus was performing open-heart surgery. Uh, he wasn't spending hours somehow trying to bring about a miracle. He spoke a word, and the man was healed. But that was all it took for them to say, wait a second, we've, we've got a verse against that. You can't be doing that. And somehow using the scriptures to justify their desire to shut Jesus down, take him out, to arrest him and eventually kill him, to defend themselves, to justify their position. What Jesus does at this point is point to their own practice of circumcision. Circumcision was something that was prescribed in the law, but it was to, it was to be done on the eighth day. So a male child is born, the baby is uh, brought to the temple on the eighth day, and they perform a circumcision. So far, no problem. The only problem was when the eighth day also fell on a Sabbath when everyone was supposed to be resting. At that point, they said, it's supposed to be resting, it's the eighth day, it's the, it's, the, uh, uh, it's the seventh day, but it's eight days since this baby was born, we really should be circumcising him, and so guess what? They circumcised him on the Sabbath when, that, when those two days fell uh, together. So every Sabbath, uh, there would be dozens of baby boys being brought to the temple, being circumcised. And what Jesus is saying, you guys are doing far more work than I am with uh, all of your circumcisions. I spoke a word and healed this person and you want to kill me. And can't you see the hypocrisy of how you're using the Bible to justify yourselves rather than letting God use the Bible to transform you. And again, we, we, we can struggle with these same temptations. The more, more familiar you become with the Bible, the more temptation there can be to use the Bible to hide behind, to, 
to bring up verses that will somehow allow you to, uh, to avoid dealing with things in your life that you know God would have us to, uh, to deal with. Thomas Paine once wrote, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Time makes more converts than reason. Understand what he's saying there? He says that if you will, if you will only look at something in your life, and it's wrong, but you don't think it's wrong. You choose to not think it's wrong. And all you need to do is keep not thinking it's wrong long enough and it'll feel like it's right. Feel like it's good. Feels like it's okay. And so in that sense, he says, many times it is time that makes, leads us into our decisions or what I'm calling our non-decisions. We slip into them over time because we, uh, over time they... The, those things that we refuse to say are wrong, we say they are not wrong, they become uh, in our minds things that are right. So we learn to justify our actions and stop examining what we do. And it is at this point that Jesus calls us to do that very thing, to examine ourselves, to make a judgment, to come to a conclusion, and to be more intentional, not to slip into a non-decision, but to come to a clear judgment. In verse 24, he responds to the authority saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying they've, they've evaluated him superficially. They've written Jesus off with hypocritical reasoning. And if they will only stop and think, if they will only make a clear judgment call for or against Jesus for or against his claims, his promises, his invitations, if they will stop and make a clear judgment, then he has hope that some of them will make a right decision. And the problem is that too many of them in the crowd weren't willing to make a right judgment. Too many of them in the crowd were slipping into these non-decisions that would not make up their mind about Jesus, but instead uh, resist him and go against him. Notice that Jesus commands us to make judgments. We we need to stop and and remind ourselves of that because we live in a, and it's an interesting time in history where in in Canada, at least, Matthew 7.1 is probably the only verse in the Bible that the average Canadian, if they can't even, even if they can't come up with a reference, Almost every uh, Canadian can quote, at, at least in some level, Matthew 7, 1. The verse that says, judge not that you be not judged. Uh, people will say, oh, oh who, who am I to judge? I, 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 we're, we're not to judge. And, and we will quote that verse, but you come to a verse like we're here in John 7, 24, and say, Jesus says, no, I want you to make a judgment. What's going on here is that in Matthew 7, 1, that our culture loves to quote, he's talking about people being judgmental, people who have just have condemning attitudes, uh, people who, who are, are condemning in the way that they approach people. And, and yes, Jesus is commanding us not to do that. He's warning against that. But at the same time, he's not by that verse saying, 
that we should just throw up our hands and not make any moral or spiritual evaluations. We're, we're commanded to make judgments. Commanded to make up our minds about spiritual and moral issues. Commanded to come to clear decisions, clear evaluations. A, a, a clear place where we make a decision. Who is Jesus? What is he asking of us? How am I going to respond to what he's calling me to? And we find it more and more difficult as a society to do that. He, he commands us to make judgments, I believe, because when we fail to make judgments, when we fail to make decisions, the alternative is that we slip into non-decisions. We slip into a position that we haven't thought through. We haven't made a clear judgment call on. We instead end up holding off on making a clear decision and instead rationalizing whatever position we might find ourselves in. And he says, don't do that. Make a right judgment. Don't, make a, don't just make a, a light superficial decision and slip into a non-decision no, make a right judgment. Make a clear evaluation. So Jesus wants us to make up our minds about him and his will for our lives because self-justification is self-delusion. That, that we can rationalize things that are just ultimately going to be damaging to us. But he also wants us to make up our minds because ignorance isn't bliss. Often what can happen is that when people do make decisions or and make many non-decisions, they will slip into a place where they have little information, they're operating on hearsay, they have uh, listened to the, the things that they have heard around them without really gathering the facts and making a decision for themselves. And the challenge is that when those decisions have big consequences for our lives, then making those snap judgments, making those those decisions with too little information is ultimately dangerous. To see that, follow along as I read from the next section here. It's verses 25 to 29. We're still on page 839 of your pew Bible. I'm going to just read that next section if you'd follow along. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now in the first section, we were, you saw Jesus dealing with the religious authorities. Now he's dealing with the, what verse 25 calls the, the people of Jerusalem, the residents of, of Jerusalem. He's dealing with the crowd. As we overhear them talking in verses 25 and 26, it's clear how much the crowd takes its cues from the rumors and opinions of the people around them. So here, they're not so much inter interacting with what Jesus said. Like, Jesus is right in front of them. He, it's an opportunity for them to ask him, to question him, to, to bring their, their, their questions and, and their doubts and make a decision. But instead of doing that, they talk about what they've heard from other people. 
What are the, what are the experts saying? What are the authorities all about? So, for instance, in verse 25, they're talking about the rumors they've heard about the authorities planning to kill Jesus. And they say, well, if the authorities are planning to kill Jesus, Jesus must be bad. And that's their, they, they slip into that non-decision. Okay, Jesus is bad. But then, in verse 26, they see Jesus speaking openly, and the authorities aren't doing anything about him. And they think, oh, maybe Jesus is good then. And so now they're slipping into a, 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 a non-decision, slipping into a snap judgment. Oh, Jesus is good now. But their reasoning is all based on, well, what are the other people saying? What, what, what's other people's opinion about this? What are the authorities saying about this? The problem is it's dangerous to make up our decisions on the basis of what other people are saying. Because you talk to enough people and you can always find someone who will help you rationalize and justify whatever position you want to take. It doesn't even help to just go to the authorities and the, the quote-unquote experts because, as I've said before, you can find a book, an author, an expert, a scholar, a preacher who will gr- agree with any moral decision you want to make, any spiritual thing that you want to affirm. There, there's somebody who's written a book, book on it. If you have trouble finding it, I could find it for you. I, I'm just, I see this stuff all the time. And so just to say, well, I think that the experts believe this is ultimately unhelpful. It's unhelpful because when you and I appear before God in the, in the final judgment, that expert is not going to be in line beside you. He's not going to be there. It will be God calling you to take responsibility for the decisions that you've made, for the decisions that I've made. We are called here by Jesus himself to make a right judgment, and we will be held responsible, responsible for the judgments that we've made. We'll be held responsibility, responsible for the decisions that we've made. And so to point our fingers at, well, I think this person said that, and I think that some people over here think this, ultimately unhelpful. Ultimately, we need to gather the information and make an evaluation ourselves. We need to make a decision. In verse 27, when the people do start engaging, and they're, now they're trying to make some kind of decision about Jesus for themselves, it, it's clear that they're making a judgment that is based on partial information. In verse 27, they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he, where he comes from. And we're supposed to read this and recognize the whole statement is ironic. It, they think that they know where Jesus comes from because they'd heard something from someone about him coming from Nazareth. From, uh, from Nazareth. But they don't know that he really comes from, from Bethlehem, where he was born. And they've heard some of the rabbinic teaching of the day that said that the Messiah would be completely unknown until he popped onto the scene and, and rescued Israel. They'd heard that teaching. And they, it, at the first, in the first century, there was there were some who, who taught that and believed that, but unfortunately for them, it didn't have any rooting in Scripture. And so they'd, again, heard some things, believed some things, bought some things, and they were, they were kind of shooting in the dark. 
they were making these snap judgments based on misinformation, hearsay, and the opinions of others. And we're warned here of the danger of making decisions like that. In verse 28, Jesus answers them saying, in a sense, in, in essence, there, there's a sense in which you know something about me. Yeah, that's true. You've heard some things. And, and some of those things are, are accurate, but you haven't really got the full picture. In fact, you really haven't got the most important part of the picture. You don't know who sent me. You don't know the God who has sent me here on this mission to rescue you. And I have come not to debate, not because I'm looking for an argument. I came to rescue you. And every time that I tried to offer you salvation, I find myself dealing with people that are sitting in non-decisions, listening to opinion and hearsay without listening to the very invitations that I offer and the claims that I make. You see here, the people of Jerusalem had gathered for this big religious festival and they prided themselves in, in the knowledge of God that they had. But their response to Jesus shows they didn't really know God. Their response to Jesus shows that they didn't know where Jesus was from. They didn't know how the Messiah would, would appear. And they didn't really know God either. Dangerous to make decisions when you don't have the information. When you're just going on hearsay. When you're going along with the crowd and what, what the public opinion is. I think back to university because I, I, there was a time where uh, after my second year, I applied for this work exchange. And I was hoping to go to, uh, I was hoping to go to one country and I, I came back, I got a response and all the information I was given was this short one-line description of a job that I would be doing in a, in a pulp mill. And it, alongside of that was the name of a small town in central Finland that I had never heard of. I, I called up a Finnish friend of mine, I know, told him the name of the town. He said, I've never heard of it. He got up his map and he couldn't find it on the map. And I was told I had one week to make a decision on this job offer. And it wasn't like it was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. It just, it was a decision that I made with far, far too little information. Uh, I, I ended up accepting the job offer. But I still remember arriving in the airport in Helsinki, getting my bags, putting them down, and I actually just, I sat on the floor and stared out into space, like literally just stunned, thinking, what on earth have I done? I've come halfway around the world to do, like, I don't know what, like a little, a little line that, you know, I could have been done, signed up to do anything. And I'm going to a place that nobody's ever heard of, and I still don't have any information about. It could have gone very, very badly. But even still, that would have just been for three or four months. The problem is that Jesus is addressing is that people will do the very same thing about their eternity. They will do the very same thing about the nature of God, the, the Savior that has come to rescue them, their response to one who calls them to follow. And we'll do it with almost as little information. We'll, we'll reject that invitation with almost as little information as I had in responding to that job offer in Finland. It, we, we need to lean in. 
We need to lean in and get the information. And yeah, there might be some things that we can learn from others. And, and, and yet it has to be us. Jesus is calling us to make a right judgment. He's calling us individually to take responsibility for how we respond to him. Our problem is that we tend to make non-decisions. God calls us to a right judgment. We've said that we need to make up our minds because self-justification self is self-delusion. We do this. We look for ways to rationalize what we're doing, and that's not a decision. We've also said we need to make up our minds because ignorance isn't bliss. We don't want to find ourselves on that day having said, hey, you know, some, some people around me, they were saying it was like this. Yeah, but what did you decide? What conclusion did you come to? Did you make a right judgment? Or did you just slip into a non-decision? Finally, Jesus urges us to make up our minds because the stakes are high. Consequences are great. And there's a lot riding on this. So let's read the last section uh, today. It's uh, verses 30 to 36. Uh, continue to track along with me there. It's uh, starting John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because... His hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. I, I love verse 30. If you could just take a, a second look at it. <laughs> the authorities are determined to arrest Jesus and they think they're so in control. They think that they've got Jesus and all that's going on. They think that they've got it all in hand. But it says, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They thought they were in control, but we're reminded it's all in God's hand. God's timing, God's plan. Until his hour has come, nothing moves forward. And it's a reminder to us because Often we make our worst decisions when we think we're the ones in control. We think we make our worst decisions when we ignore God, his plan, his timing, and we think, no, I think I've got this. I think I can do this myself. And we're reminded there's so little that we can do on of ourselves. Something similar happens in verse 33 when Jesus warns them, I'll be with you a little longer. They probably thought they had all the time in the world. They probably thought that there was no shortage of time. And, and, and we often think the same thing. But as we said, six months later, Jesus would be crucified. For many here in this crowd, it would probably be the last time that they heard Jesus. Last time they had the opportunity to speak. Last time they had the opportunity to question him. And it says, they... they uh, Jesus tells them that the time is short. It's just a little time. And yet, often we think we've got time in our own hands. 
He warns them if they don't respond, when he gives them the opportunity, they'll find themselves searching for help that won't come. In verse 34, Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. The day will come when they seek the help that only Jesus can give and they'll find that day has passed. That time has already run out. They thought they could make a judgment about Jesus whenever they wanted and Jesus warns them, no, no, your situation is far more urgent than that. I've given you an opportunity. I'm calling you to respond. Jesus said something similar in John 12, 35. There he said, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. I'm not sure if you experienced this. I see this again and again and again. Exact same principle being worked out. God will work in a person's life, and as God works in that person's life, it's, it's like God creates this curiosity and interest. It's like, God is stirring the person, and the person moves seemingly up to the edge of the pool. They'll sit on the edge of the pool and even dangle their feet in the water a little bit, but they're not quite ready to jump all the way in. And as they sit on the edge of the pool, probably from the person's perspective, boy, they've got all the time in the world to work this out. But it seldom works that way. What I've seen more is that the person will wander up to the edge of the pool, they'll put their feet in the water, and they have a window of time. They have a window of time, and and during that window, they will either choose, yep, I'm going to dive in. I'm going to put my full trust in in Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to respond to this area in my life. Or the other thing happens. The other thing, there's one of two things happen here. Either they will withdraw, and it was like that moment of curiosity and interest in God's moving in their heart, almost like it didn't happen. They're just, they're just a withdrawal. Or there's a hardening. They're still sitting on the edge of, this, uh, edge of the pool, but they're not hearing anything anymore. There's no curiosity, there's no interest, there's no drawing, and it just feels like, The position hasn't moved, but it almost feels like God's withdrawn or their heart has just closed to that window. We have less time than we think. We have less opportunity than we think. And there's more at stake in rejecting Jesus than we want to admit. In verse 34, Jesus says as much. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And, and they're, they're asking questions. Oh, what could that mean? He's going to go someplace where we can't come. Uh, maybe he's going on a trip. Maybe, maybe he's going on a little t- teaching journey. No, he is going back to the Father. He, he is going to, to heaven itself and they will find themselves if they do not respond to this opportunity with the door to heaven itself closed. They will find themselves knocking on the outside, seeking the pardon that only Jesus can give, but the time for seeking will be too late. The time to respond will be over. Where have you gotten bogged down in spiritual non-decisions? Have you made a decision to not put your full weight of trust in Jesus Christ? 
nobody usually comes to church and does this to God, right? We just slip into a non-decision to leave the pills in the nightstand. Have you made a non-decision to just sit at the pool's edge without ever diving in? Have you made a non-decision to say, Jesus, I'll invite you into this room of my life, but you don't get to go any farther. The rest is off limits. I think we all face those times in our lives. And when I'm tempted to make a non-decision about Jesus and his will for my life, what I need to do is to remind myself just how amazing it is that he didn't make a non-decision about me. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't make a non-decision to stay in heaven? That would have been so much easier, right? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come up with some verses to justify why he didn't have to come into this world to save us? Like, he wrote the book. He could have come up with some justification. He could have used the scriptures to defend his non-decision. But he came. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't pack it in? Didn't come to the conclusion, these people are too stubborn, they're too slow, these people take too, too long to respond. They're too difficult to work with. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't make the non-decision to give up on us? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't make the non-decision to not go to the cross? Jesus is an amazing Savior. And he keeps making decisions for us each day. He keeps choosing to not give up on us. He keeps choosing to come into our lives. He keeps choosing to offer grace to people who, when we know ourselves, we recognize we really don't deserve that. This Jesus is an amazing Savior, and so he's worth more than our non-decisions. He's worth a right judgment, a call to who he is, and a response to what he's held out before us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we ask your forgiveness for the non-decisions that we've made, for the judgment calls that we felt too costly to make. Help us to deal with the, deci the decisions that keep us from you. Help us to confront the obstacles that we've let stand in the way. Help us to stop ignoring you and thinking that we're in control. There's too much at stake for that. And we praise you for the hard decisions that result in our blessing. The hard decisions that you've made for us. We praise you for the grace and peace that are ours. In Jesus Christ, we pray in his name.